Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Lezia Vissen, who currently teaches business law at Louisiana State University. We'll be discussing her article, Ownership Piercing, which is forthcoming in the Ohio State Business Law Journal. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Lezia, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with a basic opening question. We see these days that LLCs, limited liability companies, seems to be everywhere. And we also have this veritable old workhorse of an entity called the corporation. I wonder if you could talk about, at a high level, just what is a limited liability company, an LLC, and how does it differ from a corporation? Limited liability companies, or LLCs, are highly contractual units of economic development. Their legal framework is mostly formed by default rules, that is, rules that can be contracted around in the LLC's operating agreement. Therefore, LLCs are very flexible. Also, they are hybrid because they incorporate characteristics of the corporation and the partnership. The LLC is also referred to as an unincorporated business organization because it allows members to benefit from pass-through tax treatment, limited liability, and the ability to participate in the company's management. When the members participate in the company's management, we say that the LLC is member-managed as opposed to being manager-managed. The LLC is manager-managed when it is managed by managers who do not hold membership interests. Corporations are less flexible business organizations. Their legal framework is partly defined by the Articles of Incorporation, or Charter, and the bylaws. Like the LLC's members, the corporation's shareholders also enjoy limited liability. In other words, they are not personally liable for the debts of the company. They will only be liable for the investment they make. Corporations are subject to double taxation. They are taxed on the profit they make. And then shareholders are taxed on their dividends. Corporations present limits on the number and types of shareholders and capital structure. Given the highly contractual features of the LLC, In my paper, I situate that business organization within a theoretical model, legal pleiotropy, to explore the unintended consequences of the LLC's contractual framework. Legal pleiotropy refers to the expression of different ownership traits caused by the LLC's contractual features. In biology, pleiotropy is a well-established phenomenon of a single gene affecting multiple traits. You make a key point in the paper that the LLC, whatever it is, not a Berlian Means Corporation. Could you talk about what you mean by that? What is a Berlian Means Corporation? What does that imply for the governance of a corporation? And how is the governance of an LLC different? Sure. In 1932, Besides pointing out the corporation's increasingly political role, Adolf Burl and Gardner Means introduced us to the idea of separation of ownership and control in the corporation. The notion of separation of ownership and control 
remains the paradigm of U.S. publicly held corporations today. Burl and Means findings are now considered intuitive. There are, however, circumstances that are not favorable to the development of a Burl Means corporation. Some of those circumstances involve the LLC. The LLC is not a Burl Means corporation because it challenges the paradigm of separation of ownership and control. Most LLCs show no membership diversification and a lower level of separation of ownership and control. Another element to consider is the correlation between ownership concentration and control. Typically, ownership is concentrated in the LLC since the LLC's units are not usually publicly traded. Concentrated ownership, uniform membership, and lower levels of separation of ownership and control are the characteristics that explain the distancing of the LLC from the Borough Means Corporation model. With those thoughts in mind, how should we think about the governance of LLCs that have chosen a manager-managed model as opposed to a member-managed model? Just who are the managers in these models? What powers do the managers have? What powers are left to members? And what duties do managers have to either the LLC itself or to the members? That's a great question. This paper builds upon a paradox, the paradox of ownership. Those who own are not always in control. Therefore, those who control should be held as accountable as the owners would be if they were in control. In member-managed LLCs, the members are responsible for the management. In manager-managed LLCs, the management is carried out by the managers. In many manager-managed LLCs, where the managers' duties and the members' rights stem from contractual obligations determined by the company's contractual framework, there is very little real ownership or control exercised by members. The company's contractual framework consists of the operating agreement and other hidden contracts that may set forth preemptive rights and other restrictions, causing a real lack of marketability of members' units. In some situations, standard contractual terms give the managers exclusive decision-making power. The role of an acting manager who had that type of exclusive power was analyzed by the Delaware Chancery Court in Metro Storage International LLC v. Aaron. And let me tell you a bit more about the fact in Heron. The defendant served as a manager of the companies. The plaintiffs contended that the defendant breached fiduciary duties and the LLC's operating agreement while serving as a manager because he pursued personal business ventures rather than the company's business. The defendant moved to dismiss the complaint for lack of personal jurisdiction. He claimed that he had not been properly served because he was not the formal manager of the companies. He did not occupy a control or decision-making role, and he acted as the company's agent. As he maintained, a person's actions in their capacity as agents cannot support an acting manager's status. In Aaron, the court considered whether personal jurisdiction should be imposed on an individual who served as a de facto LLC manager, but was not formally designated in the LLC's agreement as such, 
based on Section 18109A of the Delaware Limited Liability Company Act. The Delaware Court of Chancery explained that under Section 18402 of the Delaware Limited Liability Company Act, an LLC is a member-managed entity by default unless the LLC's operating agreement sets forth differently. Therefore, by default, an LLC does not have formal managers since each member will act as a manager. If the operating agreement sets forth that the LLC is manager-managed and will have formal managers, then that fact alone does not prevent the manager-managed company from having acting managers who participate materially in the management. Then the main question of my article is, what does it mean to participate materially in the management of the company? In other words, what criteria satisfy the material participation test set forth by the Delaware Limited Liability Company Act? The Delaware Limited Liability Company Act does not provide a substantial measure for the material participation test. I advocate that ownership piercing should be considered as a methodological strategy that courts may resort to in situations like Aaron. Cases like Aaron show that members can be particularly vulnerable to managers' power as a result of the company's contractual framework. I suggest that under these circumstances, courts may be less willing to give managers the benefit of the doubt as courts typically do when they apply the business judgment rule. I'd like to focus on this key contribution of the paper, which is this idea of ownership piercing. You talk about the distinction between ownership control in an LLC, and I wonder how issues of fiduciary duty in Delaware, when it comes to LLCs, how the courts treat those in control either in a formal managerial role or an acting managerial role. And with that kind of question in the air, I wonder if you could give us an outline of this idea of ownership piercing. Could you walk us through it? Is it the same thing as veil piercing? It sounds a little bit like veil piercing, or are these two different concepts? These are two great questions. Let me start with the issues of fiduciary duty and how Delaware courts treat those in control. So let's go back to Aaron, my illustration. In that case, there were two dimensions from which the Delaware Court of Chancery could have assessed the defendant's participation in managing the company's business. The court could have evaluated the defendant's involvement through the dimension of fiduciary law as an autonomous field of law, which would have determined examining the individual requirements of the duties of care, loyalty, and good faith. Alternatively, the court could have assessed the manager's actions through the contractual dimension involving the relationship between the companies and the manager from where the duties of care, loyalty, and good faith derived. It would have been better if the court had focused on the contractual relationship between the defendant and the companies to ascertain whether the defendant was an active manager. The contractual relationship between the manager and the companies was informed by the manager's proprietary interests and the decision-making role he played in the companies. In other words, Aaron's proprietary interests assumed different shapes due to the contracts he was bound to as an acting manager. And in my article, I say that this is an important unintended contractual 
consequence to take into account. Had the Delaware Court of Chancery assessed the manager's actions through the contractual dimension from where his fiduciary duties developed, the court would have provided a better ground than a literal or plain meaning approach to statutory interpretation. And then the court would have been better positioned to assess the level of accountability of the manager who was not formally nominated as such in the operating agreement and was, for that reason, an acting manager. Assessing the acting manager's accountability is critical to protect the members' interests and other stakeholders' interests, including the company's long-term and short-term interests. Now, you asked me about the idea of ownership piercing and if I could walk you through it and if it is the same thing as veil piercing or whether it is something different. Ownership piercing is a methodological tool. I use the expression ownership piercing to suggest that courts engage in a process of evaluative reasoning to clarify who owns property rights and controls the limited liability company. I show under what circumstances courts should pierce ownership. Ownership piercing entails investigating the reality of the company's governance and tracing the real ownership profile of the company. It means defining who materially controls the company, that is, the managers or members. And it also means to define how restricted members' property rights are considering the consensual agreements between members and other stakeholders. The idea that uh, there may be situations in which courts should ownership pierce rests on the substance over form principle, which maintains that the economic substance of transactions, rather than their legal form, be disclosed. The implication of ownership piercing is that it shifts the burden of proof in the application of the business judgment rule. In other words, once the court pierces ownership to determine the extent of the manager's control of the company, the manager defendant is the one who carries the burden of proving that they did not breach fiduciary duties. Ownership piercing is not the same as veil piercing. The veil piercing doctrine inspires the idea of ownership piercing. Both expressions appeal to the idea of an alter ego that affects the company's business. However, while the veil-piercing doctrine disregards the shield of the company's limited liability and determines the member be personally liable for the company's debts, I use ownership piercing to suggest courts intervene to clarify who owns property rights and substantively controls the LLC. If there are judges listening to this podcast interview or who might be reading your article who are faced with fiduciary claims in the context of Delaware manager-managed LLCs, or maybe if there are similar state statutes or case laws in other states, if they're listening, what advice would you have for them on how to approach these types of claims? Yes, I definitely have advice. State court judges should pay close attention to the contractual framework of manager-managed LLCs. These companies' contractual framework may yield unintended consequences that require a new reading of traditional concepts such as ownership and property rights. I analogically refer to unintended consequences in law, as I said, as legal pleiotropy. And this is a pervasive phenomenon, and you can find it anywhere. 
However, so far, this phenomenon has not been systematized. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview, or are there any open questions you'd like to tackle in the future that have been raised by your research into this question of ownership piercing and fiduciary duty in Delaware LLCs? In this paper, I created a theoretical framework that explains who substantively controls the LLC, especially when an acting manager who is not formally indicated as manager in the LLC's operating agreement is found to be self-dealing. That theoretical framework is based on an ownership piercing test. One major takeaway of the paper is this. Ownership may assume different expressions that are controlled by the company's contractual framework. It is difficult to set numerous clauses or a limitation on the number of expressions that ownership may assume. The contractual solutions lawyers find for business organizations will inadvertently affect traditional conceptions of property rights and ownership. And if lawyers are very creative and come up with original contractual solutions for business organizations, we may have to redefine property rights and ownership because it is difficult to control unintended contractual consequences. The sky is the limit. Our guest today has been Lizia Vicent, who currently teaches business law at Louisiana State University. We've discussed her article, Ownership Piercing, which is forthcoming in the Ohio State Business Law Journal. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Lizia, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.